Okay. Uh, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. I found out this story this past week. When Apollo 11 traveled to the moon in 1969, they asked all nations if they would like to give a message that would be left on a disc on the moon for any that found it. One of the nations that responded was the Vatican and their message was Psalm 8. So I thought that was interesting. And Psalm 8, if you've ever been to the moon, you already know that. <laughs> but uh, for those that haven't, then we're still, then, then that is helpful information. But Psalm 8 is the first praise psalm in this book of Psalms. And this is one writer said, now I have to admit, I did not, I have not tested this yet. But one writer stated, this is the only praise psalm that always addresses God in second person. I counted in the New American Standard that the term you is used eight times and your is used seven times. God is always spoken to and not just about. As God is spoken to, usually in praise psalms, there is some kind of call for all people to praise the Lord. There is in this, but not in a direct way, not in the way it is usually in psalms, but it's with this cry, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now the title of Psalm mentions for the choir director on the geteth if I am pronouncing that correctly and that is a title that is also in Psalm 81 and Psalm 84 Psalm 81 and Psalm 84 Usually this is viewed as some type of instrument on which this is played. It may be a musical instrument on which the the song is played. It may be a, um, a musical tone. It may be some type of festival where it was sang. We, we just don't know what it meant. One of the things that's interesting is if your translation has that word, Geteth, that is transliterated. It is not translated. When it's transliterated, we basically don't have a word for it, and it's just a way to, um, to record those words the best we can. Let's read the psalm. Short psalm, eight verses, and um, after the title for the choir director on the Gitath, a Gitath, a song, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
I'm sure you probably noticed, if you had not already before, that the psalm begins and ends with the same words. It begins and ends with the same words in Psalm, uh, the first part of Psalm 8 verse 1 and then Psalm 8 verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, when you have something like this, and it can be a whole psalm, like Psalms 146 through 150 begin and end with praise the Lord. It can be a whole psalm. It can be a smaller section. You remember uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then when He comes to the last beatitude, He says, Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He's not running out of blessings, but He is tying all of those together in that particular place. The term that's used sometimes for this in literature is inclusio. What's important is not the term, but the idea. The idea again, the same words open and close the section, and what it tells us is this views how we see the things in this section. What I mean by that is this is showing us very clearly who the main character is. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Some people look at Psalm 8 and they say it is talking about man's exalted place in the universe. It does mention that, but that is not the focus, is it? The focus is on God. And everything that is within this psalm, everything within these brackets, this inclusio, this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name, is to lead to that conclusion. It is to lead us to see how great, how glorious, and how awesome the Lord is. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name. In all the earth. Everything leads us to that conclusion. And we want to see that more and more as we go. Remember what I stated earlier where the personal pronoun you is used of God eight times and your seven times. And it shows us even these high positions given to man are given to him by God. Now, looking at the words of the psalm. Let's outline the psalm, or at least section by section, mention some kind of an outline that hopefully can give us some sense to the psalm. And this psalm, again, can be outlined in more than one way. But 8, 1, and 2 talks about God's glory and God's majesty. God's glory and God's majesty. O Lord, our Lord. First of all, he addresses Yahweh. It's the first word of the psalm. The O is added as it seems like an address to God. And then he is our Lord. The, the psalmist David recognizes he is part of a community that recognizes the Lord as God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Name, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus 20 verse 7, we have seen refers to character, what a person is. To say that God's name is majestic is to say God is majestic. God is great. God is glorious. And you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Notice again in verse 1 the mention of God's name being in all the earth. 
and God's name being above the heavens. Whether it be any part on earth or whether it be the highest heights of heaven, they all reverberate with the sound of praise to God. How, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revengeful cease. The mouth of infants and nursing babes. So verse 2 mentions infants, nursing babes, adversaries, enemies, and the revengeful. Some innocent and praising God, uh, apparently others who are opposed to God. And we'll see more about this later. One of the good footnotes that I had in my translation made a reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verses 27 and 28. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28, the Bible says God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He might nullify the things that are. God often chooses the foolish, the weak, the base, and the despised to demonstrate His glory. And in Psalm chapter 8 verse 2, He chooses the weak and the helpless and the defenseless, the nursing babes and the infants to show His strength, to show His glory uh, because of the adversary uh, to make the enemy and revengeful cease. To some degree, the mouths of infants and nursing babes in this passage silences, stops the mouth of the enemy and the revengeful. The word that is used in verse 2 for cease... The word that is used for cease. This is a verb form of the word Sabbath. Which indicates a a rest, a stopping. And here the verb form is used that the mouths of the infants and the nursing babes are going to silence they're going to cause to cease the adversaries, the enemy, and the revengeful. This word is also used as God causing wars or conflicts to cease in Psalm chapter 46 and verse 9. O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In verses 3 and 4, The text mentions God's greatness and man's insignificance. God's greatness and man's insignificance. Now, I sent this out today. Uh, You should have received this in an email. But one of the things that has helped me with Psalm 8 is to remember three basic contrasts that are being drawn in this psalm. Three basic contrasts. This psalm, the first contrast, it contrasts the greatness of God. I should say, how do I say this? Um, God is so big, and understand all of our words are going to fail here. God is so big, He dwarfs or makes small the universe. The second contrast. The universe is so big... 
that man is shown how little he is. Slightly different wording than what I used in the email, but the same idea. A third contrast. Man is little, but given a huge role in God's creation. So this is a these are the contrasts that show themselves in Psalm 8. But starting on those first two in verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? I state these facts often. To me, they are awe-inspiring. If we were to start at one end of our universe and travel the speed of light, it would take a 100,000 years to get to the other edge of our universe. The distance between us and the next neighboring galaxy is more than that. There are thousands and thousands of galaxies which have been observed. God spoke them all into existence. A basic rule the Creator is always greater than what He creates. Isaiah 40 talks about God holding all the waters of the world in His hand or marking off the heavens in the span. One of the ways this is shown in this verse that God is so big that He dwarfs His creation is in verse 3 how God, the heavens, the moon and the stars are viewed as the work of God's fingers. That shows us both God's artistry in making our world. It shows us the power in making this world. But it shows us again how small everything is compared to Him. While the universe is described as the work of His hands in verse 6, it's described as the work of His fingers in verse 3. The moon, the sun, the stars, they were so impressive in the ancient world that many people worship them. And Israel had to be warned against that. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. In Deuteronomy 17 and verse 3. Yet still you have kings like Manasseh in 2 Kings 21 who worship the host of heaven. And in Jeremiah 8 verses 2 and 3 you find the people did this in the days before Babylonian captivity. The sun, moon, and the stars were so impressive that often man worshipped them as gods able to control their destinies. But from the standpoint of our God who is so big who is so great, who is so majestic, God moves them into place with His fingers. We don't worship the earth. We worship the One who created the earth. The One who spoke them all into existence. Now, obviously, Psalm Psalm 8 seems that it was composed at night because He mentions the moon and the stars. There is no mention of the sun in this particular particular psalm. But as he's looking in the heavens, he's looking at them and he's reflecting. The word consider is a word that's generally translated see. But he's seeing them and he's contemplating them. Is there a place for Christians to look at the things God has made and to think about them, to ponder them, consider them, and to see what they tell us about God? 
Yes, absolutely. It will be fascinating to get deeper into uh, sciences like astronomy, the study of the stars. But to begin with this premise that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and to see what does it teach us about God. When you look up into the heavens and you see how awesome and how vast they are, how big is the one who spoke it all into existence? As Jeremiah stated in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, if you made the heavens and the earth, nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. But he thinks about that and he ponders it. God's so big, He dwarfs the universe, but the universe is so big that man is nothing by comparison. And he says, what is man? Notice, he doesn't say that in the most normal way. We would generally ask, Who, wouldn't we? Instead of what? Just one of the commentaries I looked at made a point of that. But it stated that yes, generally when you're talking about living beings, you use the question who. But when you're talking about inanimate objects, you use a word like what. And to speak, to use this question, what is man, is even a way to kind of be derisive toward man. Man is so small when he's looking at the heavens and he's thinking about the glory of God and he thinks about how vast the universe he What is man? What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Now, I want you to see, we didn't say a whole lot in our introduction to the book of Psalms about parallelism. Synonymous parallelism is basically saying the same kind of thing in two different lines. Notice the term man in verse 4 and the term son of man are parallel. Son of man is a poetic way to refer to man, to refer to people in this passage. Now, that doesn't mean that's how it's used in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, but it is how it's used here. The writer who actually uses son of man most frequently in the Old Testament is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel refers to himself as a son of man, and God calls him son of man, often the book. But what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Let me mention a little bit about these words. What is man that you are mindful of him, uh, or take thought of him, That is actually the word remember. And just as God remembered Noah in Genesis 8.1, and God saw the affliction of Israel in Exodus 2.23-25, and He remembered His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Hannah asked for a child, God remembered Hannah. To remember someone is to act graciously on their behalf. What is man that you remember him, that you take thought of him? And what is the son of man that you care for him? And and this word is often translated visit. It can mean visit in the sense of the visit to bring judgment or it can mean to visit to bring salvation. An example of the earlier to visit to bring judgment, uh, God uses it that way in Exodus 32 and verse 34 that God's going to come visit those 
who were engaged in the sin of the golden calf. But obviously in this context, it's parallel to the term remember and it's used in a positive way as far as salvation. God remembered. God remembered, or excuse me, God visited Abraham and Sarah and gave them a son, Isaac. And Joseph said on his deathbed in Genesis 50, 24 through 26, I know one day God will visit you and bring you out of this land. When he looks at the heavens, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you visit him? The thought that God is so big, that God is so big, and He knows each one of us and wants each of us to be saved and is willing to hear our cry and hear our prayer is truly an amazing thought. I knew a person once who was telling me about some of his encounters with a man that you would whose name you would all know who he had known for a long time who eventually became a president of the United States and he said that he'd seen him a couple of times since he was president he called him by name and the person told me I didn't even vote for him But he says, it's pretty amazing when the president can call your name. Well, I got one a lot better than that. The God who made us can call us by name. And he's not just interested in what he can get out of us. But he truly wants us to be with him. That is an amazing thought. This psalm should lead us to humility and not to pride. And notice when he begins emphasizing this third point. How man is little, but man is given a huge role in creation. When he emphasizes this point, I want you to notice how everything he says calls attention to God. Let me illustrate this. Verse 5, you made him a little lower than God. You Crown him with glory and honor. In verse 6, you make him rule over the work of your hands. And in verse 6, you put all things under his feet. God does all this. All of this is to lead us not to praise man, but to praise God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All of us, all of this leads us to exalt God. To exalt God. But he says, of man, of man who is so small in the scheme of things. And there are a lot of creatures on earth where if we were locked in a cage, one-on-one, all of us would be terrified, all of us would be afraid, and yet man has dominion over the most powerful of creatures in all domains because God gave it to us. It says you made him a little lower than God. Now here, look at your different translations. How many of your translations have a little lower than God? As the New American Standard does. Okay? My guess is a lot of people didn't raise their hand, either just being hesitant to raise their hand, or your translation says angels. How many of you say angels? It says angels. Was that, Mary, was that the King James or New King James? New King James. James. What did the ESV have? Evelyn, you have your hand up. What is it? Mine says you have made man a little lower than the angels. 
The angels. Okay, the angels. Thank you. What does the... the dog? Heavenly beings. It says heavenly beings. Okay. Heavenly beings. This is the thing. The reason you see some difference here is the Hebrew text has the word Elohim. The main Greek text, the Septuagint, has the word angels. The New Testament, when it quotes this, will quote the Septuagint. It will quote the the Greek translation. You've made them a little lower than angels. Can you understand why some would have been hesitant to say, particularly in this text, that we're a little lower than God? Obviously, the gap between God and us is so vast... It is something that cannot be spanned. And the psalm is not trying to get away from that. But the psalm is stating that God has given man an exalted position in creation. This is what it's stressing. That God has given man an exalted position in creation. Now let me demonstrate. And by the way, this is verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8 is just making this uh, distinction between um, it's emphasizing the exalted position God has given man in creation. The exalted position He has given man in creation. And as we stated, all of the focus is on God. And and the focus too is on how God has made man a king in creation. He's made man a king in creation. Now, how do I get that? Well, it says... In verse 5, you crown him. Who would you normally crown? Kings. You crown him, and it says you crown him with glory and majesty. Let me ask you to look at Psalm 21, 5. Psalm 21, Verse 5, there the text says, His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you place upon Him. Now, the term splendor and majesty there in Psalm 21.5 are the same words glory and majesty here in Psalm 8. Verse 5, but but who is this placed on? Well, look at verse 1. Psalm 21, verse 1. O Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. And in your salvation, he will greatly rejoice. Verse 3. You will meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. Psalm 21, 5, when talking about the king having splendor, about someone having been given splendor, and majesty, it's talking about the king. And here, this language is used for mankind. You crown him with glory and majesty, and then in 8.6, you make him rule. You make him rule over all the works of your hands. Again, who rules? Who exercises authority like this? It is king, It is kings who do. And then one more phrase, and I apologize if this runs together, but you put all things under His feet. All things under His feet. 1 Kings 5 verse 3 
talks, it's the days of Solomon, and Solomon is going to be able to build the temple of the Lord. And this is what the text says. First Kings chapter 5, verse 3. He refers back to David when he's talking to Hiram. He says, You know that David, my father, was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. The king often defeat often when he defeats his enemies, that kind of language is used. He put them all under his feet. All of this shows us we are a virtual king in the midst of creation. And God has put all things under our feet. All sheep, all oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. When Isaiah was very young, there was a member of the congregation that was fascinated uh, by about the circus. And he wanted to take us all uh, one Friday night. And um, and uh, I, I was watching you know, with amazement at this part of the circus where you got one man. And it was a pretty... Pretty weak looking man, tell you the truth. He probably didn't weigh 150 pounds. In a cage with six lions. When any one of them could have devoured him in a moment. How's that happen? Because God put all things. That was a circus, not the zoo, by the way. But God's put all things underneath His feet. Underneath man's feet. At what point does James make of that? We James 3. We have tamed and we can tame every kind of creature, but cannot tame our tongue. James 3, 7 and 8. So even that convicts us to some degree, doesn't it? God has given us such dominion. Don, did you have a question? Absolutely. Genesis 1. Thank you because I should have mentioned it already. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Mention it. Of God giving man dominion over everything. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Powerful, powerful psalm. Okay. What we want to do in the rest of the time. First of all, first of all let me ask you a question. But I'll tell you what we're going to do. There are a couple of passages in the Old Testament. That ask this question. What is man? And we want to look at them. We want to look at those. And then we want to look at three or four times. This psalm is quoted in the New Testament. But any questions that you have right now about Psalm 8 itself? Okay? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him or you visit him? You have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Look at Psalm 144. Psalm 144. Verses 3 and 4. Psalm 144. Verses 3 and 4. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you think of him. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. What Psalm 144 is emphasizing. I probably didn't use this. 
the best words for this. I see in my notes I have put down he is taunting man's weakness and the brevity of life. I, I, I don't know if taunting is the best word. That's what I put. But, I, but I'm changing my mind about that. But because it is emphasizing man's weakness, how man is helpless, man is helpless, man is weak, is a, is weakness, to emphasize the security that we have can only be found in God. In, in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 44, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my peoples under me. In this text, what is being emphasized is our weakness and our helplessness and our need of God's strength. He is our fortress. He is our stronghold. He is our deliverer and our shield. But one more passage that I want to look at, and this is in Job 7. Job 7, it asks the question about what is man. Job 7, about verses 17 through 19. Job has been a victim of horrible suffering. He is trying to understand it all. And he asked in Job 7 verse 17, What is man that you magnify him, that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Now I will say, the mood of this passage is greatly different than Psalm 8. Psalm 8 asks what is man in awe and wonder at the God who made this huge universe. Job 7, on the other hand, is a man overwhelmed with pain and suffering. And he pours out his grief to God. What is man, in effect, that you put him, and this is my words, not his, but trying to sum up the passage, that you put him under a microscope. You examine him continually. What is man? That you won't let him alone and let him live in peace. And he speaks of God in verse 20 in Job 7, 20 as the watcher of men. But it's not a compliment. It's a criticism. For those of you who have felt that kind of pain and asked those kind of questions, you see that Job did as well. Job 7 seems to be it's so opposite Psalm 8 that it seems to be one playing off the other. That he may be taking the words of this psalm, extolling God's care for man, and turning it around and say, God, why don't you leave us alone? I believe by the end of the book, though, that Job would have been more in the Psalm 8 camp than the Job 7 camp. Though there are also psalms that express the same kind of things as Job 7, aren't there? Okay, those are a couple of Old Testament passages that use this idea of what is man. The New Testament passages that we want to look at, the main one is Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9. Hebrews 2, 6-9. And here, the writer of Hebrews says, One has testified somewhere, saying, I like that way of quoting Scripture, Someone somewhere said this, 
And in verse 8 or 6, he says, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him, or concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, I want you to see how the rest of verses 8 and verse 9 take the words from that quotation and they apply them to Jesus. In the end of this quote, and it's easy to see in my text of Scripture because they put the quotes of the Old Testament kind of in block and you can see where the where he's quoting the Old Testament and then where he is beginning to comment on the text. But we've already talked about how this is quoting from the Septuagint because he uses the term angels. But he said at the end of verse 8, in Hebrews 2 verse 8, we do not, it says, he has put all things in subjection, all things in subjection under his feet. Put all things in subjection under his feet. And... But then in verse 8, it will use the word subjecting, subjected, subject. We use all these words as well as verse verse 5, which introduced this section. Verse 5 says he did not subject to angels the world to come. So the word subject is used in verse 5. And then in verse 8, you see subjecting Subjected, but it's the same word. What I'm trying to stress is after the writer of Hebrews quotes this scripture, he will then pick up on the vocabulary of that scripture and apply those words to Jesus. Okay? So in verse 8, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but we do not yet see all things subject to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now in verse 7, verse 9 quotes, made for a little while Lower than the angels. That is a quote. All right, he quoted that in Hebrews 2 verse 7. He picks up on those words. He picks up on those words and he applies those specifically to Jesus. Jesus and explains because of the suffering of death was made lower than the angels. Because of the suffering of death, he was made lower than the angels. And it says, he was crowned with glory and honor in verse 9. Crowned with glory and honor. Now, that specifically refers to 2-7 where he quoted that. He says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. He takes the words of Psalm 8 and applies them to Jesus. And it says that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What I want you to see right now, do you see how he is taking these words in verses 8 and 9 and he is applying those words to the quotation from Psalm 8 and showing how they're fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, right now you see that. Let's let's just erase all of this. And let me you all have you you have seen this before. You have not come to know and love it like you will, hopefully. But but often I will draw these two lines that get further and further apart. And um to emphasize the fulfillment of God's promises gets greater and richer. For example, the exodus from Egypt. God brought them out of one nation, but then the return from Babylonian captivity, they were spread in all kinds of places. And all the Jews who lived in the territory of Cyrus, 
we're allowed to go back, but a greater salvation is given in Jesus' death. And then a final salvation in heaven. And the lines get further apart because in a certain way, the salvation gets greater and deeper and richer. Okay? That's the idea. In a sense, what we have in Hebrews 2 and its use of Psalm 8 is the opposite. Psalm 8 in its general context. And would you look at Psalm 8 just on its own and say, it's about Jesus. You'd say this is about man, wouldn't you? You'd say it's about man. But this, and Don referenced what God said to man in creation in Genesis 1. Let me raise a couple points here so you make this clear. But this, what God's goal was for mankind... God's goal for mankind in the beginning in Genesis 1, 26-28 and Psalm 8 man falls short of but all these promises are fulfilled in one man Jesus. That in a sense all the promises God made to man are fulfilled in Him. God made him a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. God crowned him with glory and honor so that he could taste death for every man. And then because of this, verse 10 says of Hebrews 2, he brings many sons to glory. We can achieve our original intended purpose through him. And so maybe in that sense, then after through Christ, that picture expands again. But you see, all God's promises to man find a fulfillment in Jesus. Two other New Testament passages use those words right here. Ephesians 1, 20-23, which He brought about in Jesus when He raised Him from the dead and given Him a name that is above every name, above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion, and He has put all things under His feet. God has given Him an exalted position in the universe, and He quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, that all things were put in subjection under His feet to apply to Jesus and His exalted position in creation. So Ephesians 1, 22 in particular quotes that. Let me ask you a question. Do we see everything subject to Jesus yet? 1 Corinthians 15 says no. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 27, verse 27 is going to quote from Psalm 8, verse 6 and apply it to Jesus. But it says in verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. He will deliver the kingdom to God. That When Jesus has subjected everything, then he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, that God may be all in all. But that statement, all things are put in subjection under his feet, is still looking forward to the end when death is totally defeated at the return of our Lord. Now, I'm sure there's a depth and richness to that that we haven't even started to touch. But those are some passages. There is one more that quotes Psalm 8, and it doesn't quote verses 4 through 6. Look at Matthew 21. 
the Gospels record an event of Jesus cleansing the temple. But there are a couple of elements in Matthew's account that are unique. In Matthew 21, Jesus cleanses the temple. He says, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a robber's den. In verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But in verse 15, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and saying, do you not hear what the these children are saying and Jesus said to them yes have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you prepared praise for yourself the blind and the lame who are healed the children who are shouting Hosanna to the son of David are a picture of these weak and insignificant infants and nursing babes Who are praising him. Though this part of the verse isn't quoted. It's very clear that the chief priests and scribes in verse 15. Are the enemy and the revengeful. Just as it has always been. Sometimes the simple can see and understand what's too plain to miss. And those who are sophisticated and educated are too hardened in their heart to see it. I did something a couple of weeks ago. Nobody asked me about it. But I was kind of counting on it. We took some of the words of Psalm 6 and we applied them to Jesus. Jesus is the innocent sufferer of Psalm 6. But Jesus is also the God to whom people cry, save me and have mercy on me. Can we really apply the words of the Psalms that are addressed to God, to Christ? Isn't that what he's doing? In Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. That he is taking the words of praise that were uttered. Praise that were uttered to Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. And justifying it on the basis of these words of praise that are offered to Yahweh. In Psalm 8. I recognize that there may be a clear way to word that. Any questions right there? In just a moment, and I appreciate John and Micah helping us with the Zoom tonight. Hoping we have more listening on Zoom than we generally do since we have some sick and unable to be here. We're going to sing these words. I want to encourage you to, maybe I haven't said this enough, not only to, it's a beautiful thing to use these words in song, but we can use these words in prayer. If you have struggle, if you struggle, what should I say in prayer? What book could you study that's better for that than the book of Psalms? And let's close. We'll have a prayer and then we'll have John lead us in the song. But let's have a prayer. O Lord our God, O Lord, our Lord, your greatness and your glory are greater than our capacity to understand. How great you are. How awesome you are. Lord, we gaze up into the night sky. Or on a beautiful day as we had today. We look into the sky. And we are awed even by what you made. And how much greater must you be as the creator And how small we look when we know that you've created stars big enough 
to fit most of our galaxy within them. How amazing it is. You hear our cry. You hear our prayer. And how amazing it is that you care for us and love us and sent your son to die for us. Tonight we have seen a passage that is so profound that it took the death and resurrection of your son to fulfill it. We are amazed at your care your love, and your grace. And Lord, may we praise your name. May we praise your name here. May we praise your name in eternity. In Jesus we pray. Amen.